Welcome back to Trending in Education. Dan Strafford, Brandon Jones, Michael Palmer along with you. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about a learning myth, summer learning loss. We've tackled myths in the past, hoping to do more of the same here on today's episode. Always like to check in first, though. Brandon, how are you doing today? Well, I, I was thinking that this was about as good as I was going to get because uh, it's summertime. And so uh, we were going to be uh, going to be melting with some knowledge. But then I got learned up. Mm. And maybe that's not going to happen. So who knows? Who knows, Dan? I'm doing, I will tell you, I'm doing well. Um, and uh, I'm excited to do a little myth busting. Oof. Michael, how about yourself? Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, it is technically summer. And I'm ready for some summer learning game. So I'm ready to gain some learning. Who said you can only learn during the, the cooler months of the year? Because if you think about it, summer's kind of cool in its own way. And learning is cool, right? So let's super cool. So let's learn in the summer. Let's learn about summer learning loss. And in fact, it may be a myth. So maybe we should bust that myth. Well, we know our listeners are learning throughout the summer because we're releasing new episodes, but we're talking here about uh, students, K through 12 mainly, based on studies throughout the years. But uh, one contextual point is, uh, this is based off of an article from uh, educationnext.org, and they also have a podcast available, which is a nice tandem to what we're gonna be talking about today. I wanna give them a shout out for the discussion they had. Uh, it's from uh, work by Paul T. Von Hippel uh, over there. He is the editor, uh, Ednext editor-in-chief uh, as he, or sorry, Mary West is, they have the discussion about it. So I want to point you there as source material for what we're going to discuss throughout today's episode. But Mike, I find it intriguing at the top that a lot of these myths around learning are from one or two studies that just haven't been revisited. Uh, we've seen it with learning styles. We've seen it here. And this feels like one that will be perpetuated no matter how many times it's busted. Like how many, t it's just going to be something that continues to be sort of in the mindset of some learners. Uh, do you think it's just time that more research we've talked about before needs to be done around these sort of topics, more money put into understanding how we learn and how we maybe forget certain topics uh, more often rather than just assuming a, a study from 40 years ago is still valid today? I don't know. I mean, I, I think humans are meaning makers and myth makers and storytellers. So I feel like they'll always be those things. And uh, And I think right now there is this, in some ways a meta myth, uh, hang with me on this. There's this meta myth that we can actually know with certainty the realities beneath the myths. And uh, I don't know if that's actually true. So like you can know something very narrow based on the research that you can construct and science is really helpful that way. But when you really look at it, it's all about context and about, uh, you know, individuals engaging with learning and memory and educational experiences in a particular context. So uh, while I think it's good to, to get harder science to uh, keep everybody honest, um, I think there's a natural tendency among humans to gravitate towards myths and stories and hooks and narratives that resonate. Uh, and, uh, this narrative still rings true to me as someone who hasn't been in high school or uh, the like in 20, 30 years. Uh, it still makes sense to me that you go out and play over the summer and then you come back and you lost some of your information. So like there is a little bit of surface uh, believability to this narrative. And I think stuff like that will always happen. Um, but, uh, but it's fun to actually be able to 
you know, peel the onion a little bit and say, you know what, uh, research is showing that that's not actually true, uh, particularly if you're saying it's universally applicable to everybody. So um, I thought the research is interesting. I think the story's interesting. And, uh, and getting back to my sort of jokey uh, open, like people should, people are learning all the time. You're just learning different stuff. So like the, the formal education maybe ends over the summer, uh, but hopefully you're still learning, even if you're learning how to play Fortnite better and how to catch up on, uh, you know, your favorite uh, must-see TV. So um, uh, I think it's an interesting topic. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think it's tough to, to truly expunge all the myths from our permanent record because I think we're, we're evolved to gravitate towards good narrative, good story, good hooks. Yeah, and I think that there. So, and credit to this this article um, from Education Next, which I think we'll share out. But um, I think in addition, so I think you're right on that that narrative that fits with our lived experience, uh, that foots to our lived experience, um, gets affixed then, and that becomes truth. Um, so there's in addition to the the narrative that. You know, there is this sort of, I'm, I'm using summer melt, which is actually in higher ed used for a different topic, but uh, I like the idea. It's hot out there. Yeah. The Audubon is melting. I don't know if you saw that. No. Yeah, le legit is. As a quick aside from like the, all the hots, this is the hottest time ever in Europe. Summer. Just, the, you're talking about the, the road. The not, friggin' Audubon is friggin' melting. Not the bird people. Not the bird people. Not the Audubon society. Got it. Okay. Just, the Zoom Zoom just Audubon. Got it. Got it's, it. It's literally melting. That's bad. It's bad. So in addition to uh, the general myth that, uh, that there's learning loss over the summer, one of the things that this, this article tackles is this research that was done in the 80s, uh, the study that shows that the, the delta between high income or low poverty stu uh, schools uh, and students and high poverty schools and students, that that delta increases from, I think, the period of kindergarten and first grade through eighth grade. And that almost all of the delta increase comes from summer delta increases. Yep. So that, that is to say that students from low poverty schools, more affluent schools, they pick up more ground on their, low, on their high poverty, low income uh, counterparts in the summer than they do the, during the school year. So in fact, one could interpret those data and say, um, the schools, those low income schools, those high poverty schools are actually doing a fine job because they're keeping pace it's what happens when those children are not in school mm. that, um, yep. you know, maybe in more affluent uh, uh, families that there, there's a parent at home who's able to help, uh, you know, because you don't have two working parents or the parents are able to take more time off or there's a culture around reading or whatever it is. Right. Um, so that was, a, that's a, another myth that has been propagated and gives in, in this article some examples of, uh, places where the, these data are just cited even 40 years later. I think the thing that was interesting is that the researcher for this article took issue with the initial study. Mm. Uh, one, it's from uh, one set of schools in Baltimore and, and you know, we're extrapolating from that to everywhere. And then two, um, tests, tests are hard. As, as test people, we know yeah. that having uh, valid and reliable tests uh, is like, there's, that's it's hard. It's and worked. by the way, expensive. Mm. And there was, um, th there was beef in, with, uh, in within this article, beef in with how those tests were constructed. Some so, academic shade. Academic shade. We could use that how hot it is. The Audubon is melting. Uh, any shade we could take. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I think that, that is interesting. And, and this actually goes back, it's the last thing I'll say at this point, but this go back, it goes back to your initial point, Mike, which is 
narrative ends up being sticky. And so even if um, these, the, the, either the research methodology, and, and it's not, I don't think the shade was thrown at the, the researchers, it was just thrown at, at, at the instrument. Even if the instrument was imperfect, and even if the sample was small, it, it tells a story that then it persists for 40 years. Right. So, uh, and I think that is, it is a very human thing to want to let those narratives persist. Mm -hmm. I was also intrigued by uh, the authors just outright saying that at the end of a school year, what is being tested and what is being tested at the beginning of a school year and trying to make a comparison there is also difficult because of what is being discussed, what is being test, tested and trying to be evaluated. To Brandon's point, uh, talking about the scoring methods used uh, was what he largely dove into about uh, the beginning school study, which is the Baltimore study, uh, used the California achievement test, and that was scoring from the 1920s. And now is they were trying to move to more modern scoring types and understanding how everything was evaluated. But Mike, as as we try to understand this, I think he makes a very wise point that of course everyone's learning less or learning slower over the uh, the summer, right? So uh, it may be broader gaps. Uh, but he feels as though that's the conclusion we should be coming to, that all students are across uh, probably need help coming back into the school year. Is that your takeaway from this? That seemed to be his conclusion, that uh, it's about everyone learning less over the summer and everyone's disadvantage coming back. Do you feel that's the proper takeaway from all this research? Do you feel like there's more to dive into to really understand it all? I think there's more to dive into in terms of the policies that could sure. make people get more out of their summers, make students get more out of their summers. There's a lot of uh, research happening around different models of the school year, uh, whether it's, you know, extending the school year through the summer and how you might do that, just like there's other research into when you start the school day. Um, I think that type of research is interesting because that could be transformative in some ways. Um, it's hard because I think a lot of us, um, I think about, you know, my adolescent brain uh, having time to go fallow uh, over the summer so that it could grow again in the, in the fall. Um, like that's something, again, that narrative is something that, that has resonance to me. Like the, and also the idea of space repetition, the importance of play, like the ability to have unstructured time when other aspects of your cognitive development can kick in. Um, I think there's probably a recipe to be found that is different from the way we deliver uh, K-12 education today that could be informed by research like this. So that to me is more where I gravitate to is like what new models are emerging that might change the way summer is treated so that people aren't completely checked out. Cause like the, the flip side of, um, you know, space repetition, which basically says, you know, mass practice, just continuing to pound on one idea is actually not good for your cognitive development. I think the flip side is like the, the neuroscience of uh, forgetting where like, you know, your memories decay over time. And if you're not prompted to refresh them, you'll forget. So like, I think there are ways to, you know, provide services to, to kids and families over the summer to keep them fresh. Um, and uh, I, that's more my takeaway where like, you know, we all have a tendency to forget stuff and there are real opportunities to leverage the emerging science around memory and learning to uh, make everybody better going in and coming out of a summer break. Um, and then the, the interesting thing, uh, just building on, uh, you know, Brandon's breakdown of this research 
is like, I think we have to be careful about um, being a little bit paternalistic about um, the lower income or high poverty uh, kids. Cause I, cause I do think there is a narrative there that um, I think can get tricky and have some confirmation bias in it. So like, that's the part of the, the, the debunking that I do think is, is really interesting and that I really liked in this story because, um, you know, it reminds me of, uh, you know, Factfulness uh, as a book that I read that talked about how um, the developing world is actually doing much better than it was 20 or 30 years ago. But many of us don't even realize that because we were educated with what was a fact then, but those facts have changed. So, I do think it's important to be careful about um, uh, almost like disempowering uh, high poverty kids uh, by, you know, falling prey to these narratives that might be, it might be our instinct to kind of buy into them and instead think about like, how could we activate their intellectual curiosity, keep them develop, developing their ideas, provide the right kind of services for all kids. Um, that's kind of where I, gravitate to based on uh, this research. I think it's a really interesting topic because like they didn't really get into the, the learning science or neuroscience of how you might structure summers to be more uh, conducive to learning. Uh, even if it is saying you need a break and get outside and play, um, I'd like to see more research in that, in that vein. Maybe that's something we could pick up on in the future. Yeah, they, they did talk, you're right, you're right. They, they did talk about the, um, the different school models of, uh, right. and, and you mentioned this already, but the um, uh, year round versus extended year. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they're saying is that if you take more recent data, it, it does, they, they, all those data show that the uh, learning happens, um, learning growth is slower for all students during the summer. And mm -hmm. so if you believe and the data suggests this, that there is a delta between high and low poverty students in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. um, it, part of the solution is probably getting there before, actually. Uh, but yep. that the summer may be a time when you can work even harder, systematically, I mean, yep. um, to solve that gap. Because if uh, if the during the school year, you know, the, the uh, slopes of these graphs are pretty similar, you have a time when for the, the low income, uh, more affluent, uh, uh, the low poverty, more affluent schools, those students are not picking up as much that, that students from other schools, from, from higher poverty schools could pick up more. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, and the, the, the different um, school year models of year round versus extended, I think is interesting. So for example, year round, which takes the same number of days and just spreads it over the whole year, like, I wonder, um, this goes to sort of the space, space repetition uh, uh, analog there. I, I wonder if it would take that same slope, which is <clears throat> for most students in the traditional summers off school year um, is sort of stepped at different slopes. If it would just take the same learning mm -hmm. and spread it differently, like having 180 days in nine months if you would get the same learning as 180 days in 12 months, or if you wouldn't, because I, I think that would be an interesting model. Yeah. And then the extended where you get, you know, 200 plus school days a year, I would believe that you probably get more learning from more school. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's like what the, the normal like interpretation, reasonable, rational interpretation might be. Yeah. Uh, interesting things to, to, interesting things to see. Yeah. And that 
with that, it would cost more to run those extra right. days. And then it would cost more for parents who are like, nope, you really do need to go to school more. Yep. It would cost more for kids free time and their ability to, to relax over the summer. But like, that's the type of area of educational policy and research that, that this, this focus so kind of showcases. And uh, I think the conversation is really just beginning uh, but it does tie back to some of the rigidity around K-12 education that makes it hard to actually affect the change. So like you can get some of the research in, but then to actually do a randomized controlled intervention that then will result in a really scalable alternative, that's going to be hard. It's real tricky. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's, a re- it's an interesting uh, topic. And uh, I think it's summer and we all gained some learning while talking. About yeah. Well, what do, yeah. You know? you know? what do you know? What do you know? I think just one, one last closing thought, just um, even if you can't implement a K-12 solution, if you could try to, to test into like a K-2 solution, mm-hmm. you know, everyone says, I'm not saying anything new, but everyone says that if you're going to make an outsized investment, do it the earlier, the better. Right. So if there is an achievement gap in kindergarten, you know, and that widens over the course of time, even if it's still going to widen, if you can narrow it in kindergarten, first, second grade, that may have real outsized impacts on, you know, the long-term educational achievement, the long-term earning power of students in that demo. I think that's, that's, that's where I would say like K-12 solutions that are K-12 are going to be really, really difficult to either randomly control trial or to implement. Um, How about a K-1 uh, trial, right? So I, I think there's there's interesting uh, there, there's I think interesting application of these data to some real life uh, test cases ahead. I think that's a great point, that because that space with the renewed focus on pre K to kind of pick up on how that transitions into an area that you could probably you could monkey around a little bit with kindergarten. Who's I mean, parents will get triggered by it, but like you could be a little more experimental sure. in that space. I, I I like what you're putting down. They're malleable. No, yeah. kindergartners. I, I, I have one. She's going to first grade. She's fine. We could test with her. It'd be fine. Uh, a, a good discussion. I have another one coming. It's fine. But it'll be, she'll be great. Uh, but a great discussion. More we'll come back to on this one as well uh, as we roll forward. Uh, I, and that is not to say my wife is pregnant. Yeah. I, ah, congratulations. I, I, I didn't know that was a spoiler. I didn't know what was going on. These strappers just keep making babies. <laughs> Breaking news. It's no. the baby factory. This just no. in. Uh, I have a two-year-old who will be a kindergartner someday yeah. is what the, what I was trying to say there. And I realized by both looks on your faces that that is not what was understood of what I said. So <laughs> worth clarifying a uh, great discussion. One we'll come back to maybe uh, at the end of the summer, we can test our listeners as to what they remember from this podcast. And we can go from there on our own research around summer learning loss. Uh, as always, great stuff from Brandon Mike. Don't forget over at podcastawards.com, nominate us for the Education Podcast Award. We would greatly appreciate it. You do have to sign up, but simple login, drop down in the education bracket, go to Trending in Education and hit submit. We are ready to go. Find us on Twitter at Trending in Ed. Same on Facebook, trendingineducation.com. Love to hear from you. If you have comments, leave them on Facebook, tweet at us, send us an email. Happy to hear from each and every one of you. Until next time, you've been listening to Trending in Education. Thank you.